In November 2000, November 2000, it's a bright Saturday morning in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. I sit on a park bench with Barry Lowe, a second-generation Chinese-American teacher of Qigong and Tai Chi Chuan, watching rollerbladers streak by, reminiscing about our respective entrances in the world of Chinese martial arts. Now in his late 40s, Barry discovered martial arts in his teens. I started around maybe when I was 15 years old, he says. I got into martial arts because I was looking for some kind of heritage, some kind of roots. And I saw in this magazine, Kung Fu. And I didn't know what Kung Fu was, and I asked my parents. I said, geez, you don't know what Kung Fu is? And then they told me. And that's when I found out this time around, in this lifetime, I was more attracted to healing and health and promoting peace, spiritual evolution, things like that. So I got into Tai Chi. And it was either Tai Chi or Aikido, and it just so happens that I met a Tai Chi master. So to this day, I see him occasionally. This guy, he's like an excellent, excellent example of the Tao. Well, Barry goes on to describe taking students on trips to China in the early 90s with his friend Charlotte to meet martial arts teachers and Taoist meditation teachers. He says, the first group was sponsored by Noetic Sciences, and then the second time I think we brought our own group over, and it was just too much to handle. So after that, we made the groups a lot more intimate and small, and we changed it from just like bringing people over to China, and we called it Taoist Wandering. And that's when I started to experience the tantra of it all, of learning through experience at the moment, you know, through action. My grandparents came over from China. My mother was born in Sacramento, and my father was born here in San Francisco. So San Francisco became home. Why did your grandparents come over, I asked Barry. Any particular reason? I really don't know. You see, I mean, that's another reason I go to China, because my parents really don't fill us in on the past. Either there's some embarrassment, or there's something you just don't talk about. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, or it's just my family, but for my desire or intuitive sense of finding roots, that's when I went back to China, believing in reincarnation or past lives. When I go to certain places, I mean, there's this one Taoist temple. That was the teacher of Charlotte. So she brought us there, and well, that was the first time I just started uncontrollably crying. Well, as a second-generation Asian-American, Barry's one of many of his cohort who treat martial arts partly as exercise, partly as a heritage experience, partly as a spiritual journey. In Barry's case, the arts of Tai Chi Chuan and Qigong provide him with a conduit for crossing not only borders of imagination in his search for identity, but also geographical borders. Barry invites others to accompany him on the search and then reinserts what he learns into the context of the San Francisco martial arts and New Age culture. Barry travels to China for a particular social, sensual experience of Chineseness. And he returns home to reinterpret that experience, and then he returns to China to reinterpret home. We're going to fast forward for a moment. People's Park in Shanghai, 2001, spring. Every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, Every 80-year-old Zhang Jingui rides his motorcycle several kilometers from Jabei District to People's Park, the site of the old Shanghai race course in the foreign concession days. 
usually arriving between 8 and 8.30 a.m. By that time, amidst old men playing weiji, old men and women ballroom dancing, old men airing their songbirds, and people of all ages rapping at their morning kaiji or breathing exercises, the Starbucks personnel bringing out the patio chairs, and the Anhui park workers sweeping sidewalks and making repairs. Several members of Zhang's group of retirees have already arrived and have begun practicing, or at least chatting. It's a small group of five or six men and one woman. 70-year-old Lao Dong is the informal leader of the group. His kids run a massage place down the road. You might have an image or two of them. This is the practice space, actually. Um, and this sign, I don't know if it's still posted, actually. It was uh, uh, in the summer, but I didn't notice when I was there three weeks ago whether it's posted. But it says, Wu style, Tai Ji Chuan. And the uh, People's Park uh, office responsible for approving the sign. <laughs> this is uh, Zhang Jingui here when he's uh, 80 years old. Uh, Lao Dong and uh, other people in the park who all strike. Lao Dan and I wordlessly begin the two-person Taiji push hands exercise. I'll describe that a little bit later with your help. Things are just a bit tense because the previous day, an American spy plane had collided with a Chinese jet off Hainan Island, killing the Chinese pilot. Perhaps you recall that incident. The American plane had been forced to land in Hainan and the crew taken into custody. If anyone asks me that morning where I'm from, the answer is going to be Australia. I think it was once or twice. After a few minutes of silent practice, Lao Dong quietly but firmly says to me, we liked Bush Sr. We don't like Bush Jr. That breaks the ice. Everyone's relaxed. Aside from Lao Dong, there's Auntie Wong, who has a daughter in Canada, Uncle Tang, who keeps me regularly supplied with comic book versions of classic Chinese stories. Uncle Lee, who's always nursing an arthritic arm, rarely speaks. Uncle Wu Yang, with a chronic bad knee, who's at once the most competitive and most ebullient member of the group. Teacher John's practice always begins with a 10-minute version of the 125-move Taiji slow set, which means it's not particularly slow at that point. Kind of medium fast, and I'll demonstrate a little bit of that in a minute. He does not cut out any of the individual postures, but he does speed it up. We're then left to our own devices individually or small groups practicing fast forms, weapons forms, um, different kinds of basic exercises, the pushing hands exercise. And John circulates around this small group of retirees and me and whoever else might be there that day and uh, gives us individual corrections. The atmosphere is always peaceful on these Thursday and Saturday, Sunday sessions. It's playful, it's relaxed. It's a little vacation to start the day for everyone. And for the retirees in People's Park, and for the younger players who study with John Jingwei privately or on weekends, there's a, a certain sense of stability, there's a balance in Teacher John's presence. A continuous member of our Wu-style Taiji Chuan Association since the 1940s, he's seen by group members as both highly skilled a teacher whose forms meet the highest standard of accuracy and is a kind of embodiment of the martial virtue. Once a seeker of the little old Chinese man himself, 
He's now become the little old Chinese man who others are seeking. To try your patience, one more ethnographic moment. 2002, Austin, Texas. I'm pushing hands with a group of longtime partners in Austin's Keys Park. On the trail beside us, people jog, bike, walk their dogs a little ways down the stream. A group of university students play frisbee golf. As in Shanghai, the morning park is full of life. And as we push hands and do our exercises, one of my friends asked some advice regarding his daughter's college admission application. Next to us, another pair chat about the impending war as they push hands. In the air, there's a distracting scent of coffee wafting over from the nearby Starbucks. Here in this Texas park, trying to push each other over without really trying, we're peaceful, playful, a bit competitive, but relaxed. Well, uh, apologies for pulling you straight into the ethnographic pool here. Um, and I will give you a little background now. Uh, I wanted to start with a, uh, an immersion, a bit of an experiential moment there. Uh, and I think that, that theme is going to carry on through the presentation. I thought, well, how do I communicate this idea of identity moving through us in a, both a social and a sensual way? And I think part of it has to be communicated in a, in a, in a somewhat sensual way. But uh, I'll freeze the ethnography for a moment and just tell you a little bit more about what Taiji is. Uh, Taiji Chuan is a word that uh, really has two parts. Taiji, which is supreme ultimate. There are many translations, and I, I've sort of given up trying. Uh, but the idea of the extreme of the extreme is, is part of the term. Um, and you see this in, for example, the yin-yang symbol. Taiji, Taiji Du, is the diagram of the supreme ultimate. All right, And that's what we call the yin-yang symbol. When the word chuan is added to that, we're talking about now a boxing method, chuan's fist or, or boxing. So uh, Taiji Chuan is supreme ultimate boxing. And uh, it's an art that's made up of uh, weapons forms um, and this push hands exercise. It's made up of uh, various meditative or yoga-like practices, uh, basic stretching exercises, and, uh, you know, in, in many ways similar to lots of other Chinese martial arts in that respect. You know, I guess everyone could do this, if that's all right, in place. I know I, I, know I said I wouldn't do this. <laughs> it's your call. If everybody could just stand up, you don't have to participate. Just stand up in place and put your things down. Um, and I just want to take you through the, the opening move of the form. It's, it's very, very simple. Uh, it help me talk a little bit about the principles here. Um, we start out in, in uh, the Wu style Tai Chi, uh, similar, most styles start in a very similar way. Uh, the feet are about shoulder width apart, in this case parallel. All right, and we're going to take ourselves through a little series of checkpoints here. The first one, um, we imagine there's a string attached to the crown of the head, the bikeway point, the very top of the head, and that string is suspending you from above. And uh, we're going to work our way a little bit down the body, piece by piece. Uh, lightly touch the tip of your tongue to your hard palate or, or the roof of your mouth, if your tongue stretches that far. And continuing down, 
drop your chin a little bit so you're looking, imagine about a 100 meters ahead, pretty far ahead, at about a 45 degree angle. So that string's pulling you up, you're dropping your chin. Now drop your shoulders forward. Just completely relax, now still keeping that energy at the top of your head. Continue working your way down and just make sure you're relaxed in your belly and your lower back, your hips. Your knees should be very slightly bent. You're going to work your way all the way down to your ankles. And you're going to feel your feet sticking to the ground. Now there's a little point where your toe, your big toe, meets the ball of your foot. The Yongchuan point, or the bubbling wellspring point. And I want you to just imagine that that point on each foot is really sticking to the ground. There's a piece of chewing gum there, and sticking to the ground. And you don't have to do anything particular with your breathing, but I just want you to imagine that your breathing is coming through that point from the ground and exiting on the exhale through that point into the ground. So ideally, everyone goes through these little checkpoints before they begin the form. And we call this posture just getting ready to, to move, getting ready for Taiji, Wuji, which is without extreme, without any extreme. It's like that moment if you're a musician, you sit down at the piano right before you, you begin to play. All right, so the first move in the Wu style is simply called raise hands, and uh, it's a four-part move. So just watch once and then we'll do it together. The hands come up, that's one, two, they come straight back, three, you're going to drop the elbows, and four, the hands pass the sides, you drop down the bottom. Okay. And they end up just a little bit in front of your body, very relaxed, fingers open a little bit, very relaxed. All right. So let's just do that together, and then I'll let you sit down. I promise. <laughs> Um, all right, so one, the hands float up. Imagine, again, there are two strings pulling your hands up at the wrists. Drop the shoulders, drop the elbows. Now let the hands float back. That's two. As soon as you feel just a little bit of pull in your sternum, just a little touch of tension, that's as far as you go. All right? You're going to drop the shoulders again because they like to creep up and you drop the elbows, and the hands come down. The palms lead the way down until the hands reach. And a lot of times people will just hang out here as a kind of a standing meditation posture as well for 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. It depends. You just let the hands come to the side and have a seat. Thank you. Thanks for indulging me. Um, all right, so what happens in that moment uh, between uh, Wuji and Taiji, right? You, cosmologically, you're going from this point where there's no differentiation of yin and yang in the universe or in the body, right? And then that moment happens where there is a differentiation of yin and yang. There's a three part. There's three parts. There's yin and yang and there's a union of yin and yang, represented by that yin yang symbol, right? So 
for the Tai Chi practitioner, you know, it, it's not something they particularly dwell upon, but it is the fundamental starting point that you're going from this sort of uh, empty moment to this moment where there's a, a differentiation and a simultaneous union of yin and yang. So what I'm going to talk about today is uh, is based on the field work that I conducted starting around 1988, really, and, and going up to the present, with the uh, Shanghai-based Wu family-style Jin Chuan Taiji Chuan Association, and um, while Taiji Chuan is a it's a global phenomenon, certainly. In fact, I, I'm kind of curious how many of you actually do Taiji of some kind or another, or have done it at least once. Yeah, everyone's a little embarrassed, and then 20 hands go up. Okay, don't be embarrassed. That's what we're here to talk about today. It's um, yeah, and that's not usual, I'd say. That in, in almost any town in America right now, I probably have about the same percentage of folks raise their hands that, that they, they actually have encountered Tai Chi. So while it's a global phenomenon, it's, mainly, uh, it's now mainly practiced as a kind of helpful martial dance. Uh, my main focus today is really on the minority practitioners, again, who, who practice, who emphasize the original martial aspects of it. And that's because this Wu style association in Shanghai uh, does emphasize the martial aspect of it. So even those who are interested in primarily uh, in improving health or dealing with an existing illness uh, are taught some aspect of the martial arts. So aside from that, I'm really interested in how Tai Chi as an increasingly popular transnational practice both reifies and nullifies notions of Chineseness. Right, so I will be sort of arguing from the stance that in, in moments of intense practice, um, ethnic and racial identities, differences, uh, do disappear. <coughs> that they're, they're, they're reified and then they disappear. And that's a sort of constant dance in itself in terms of identity. So I'm trying to communicate the uh, complexity of the practice in terms of this odd word, Chineseness, um, I find myself caught between two statements. The first was made to me by a Chinese Taiji practitioner in a Shanghai park sometime in the early 2000s. It went something like this. It's too bad you'll never understand this stuff because you're not Chinese. All right. The second is a statement um, I really very recently <coughs> ran across in Sartre's Existentialism is a Humanism when I was introducing the book to our, our freshmen at my college. Uh, he just says at one point that uh, every configuration, even the Chinese, the Indian, or the Negro, can be understood by the Westerner. Now, I'm taking that out of context. He elaborates on a, on a position from that point. But uh, I do think it's representative of, of a view that uh, is kind of a dirty little secret that still persists in anthropology. Um, we've had the postmodernist moment. <laughs> But uh, in some ways, I think we still do persist in saying, well, of course, I can understand this other person. So as a Taiji practitioner, it's impossible for me, uh, it, I, I can't agree with either of the statements, actually. As a Taiji practitioner, I can't agree that I'll never understand Taiji, because then I just have to stop. I can't agree that uh, um, I'll never understand other people. But as an anthropologist, it's hard for me to escape these statements. Right, so I'm, I'm really trying to contend with both those positions. In terms of bodily practices in general, and the art of Taiji in particular, uh, these statements do, 
for me, delimit an interesting set of questions about how, as anthropologists, we should best approach practices that are both transnational in scope and persistently associated with particular notions of race and ethnicity. For example, is a movement practice like Tai Chi Chuan best conceived of in terms of movement? That is, the continuous flows between movement and stillness, like the yin-yang symbol. Is it helpful to think of it as a continuous flow of movement between socialization and sensuality? Between the mutually constitutive environments, the mutually informative analytical levels of body, history, uh, the city of Shanghai, the Chinese state, uh, the world of imaginative production like movies, novels, etc. Um, and for lack of a better term, what I've come to call global Chinatown. In realizing an anthropology of transnational practice as a subsection of social cultural anthropology, what methodology, if any, is actually available to us? And can such a methodology of transnational practice allow us to simultaneously experience the two extremes that Sartre and my Shanghai practice partner represent? So essentially, I, I really am talking about a methodological term more than a theoretical one, per se. You know, how do you actually go do this type of anthropology? It's expensive, for one thing. <laughs> is if you're following a practice around the world, um, you, you run into practical difficulties. But uh, I think it's also full of cognitive difficulties that we have to deal with. I do want to bring Tim, Tim Ingold into the discussion. I think he's very useful and, and really resonates with, with some of this material. Uh, let me bring up just a couple of quotes I, I thought were useful. Ingold, this, these are all from uh, the optimal forager and economic man, perception of the environment. Uh, rather, he says, to observe is actively uh, to attend to the movements of others. To imitate is to align that attention to the movement of one's own practical orientation towards the environment. The fine-tuning of perception and action that's going on here is better understood as a process of enskillment than as one of enculturation. And then, in short, a technique such as, uh, he's talking about interstice foraging, is not passed on as part of any systemic, systematic body of cultural representations. It's rather inculcated in each successive generation through a process of development in the course of the novice's practical involvement with the constituents of the environment, under the guidance of more experienced mentors in the conduct of their everyday tasks. The accomplished hunter consults the world, not representations inside his head. And uh, the last one here, it's my contention that in reality, the forms and capacities of organisms are the emergent properties of developmental systems. And I, I think all these ideas are really very, very applicable to, to the field work that, that I conducted, what I found amongst Taiji players in, in Shanghai. All right, so I want to just spend a few minutes breaking down then some of these multi-levels of, of analysis that I started talking about in the paper. And I'm going to start with history, all right? Uh, if we look at this as, uh, earlier this morning, uh, Elizabeth brought up the idea of, of history, uh, the, the body as, as a kind of a receptor of history, being able to read the body as a text, read history in the body through, through the movement and through understanding what you're seeing and experiencing the movement. And to get at that, I actually want to talk about the Alamo. All right, 
if you're not familiar with the Alamo, it is a, a former fortress slash church, now a museum. It's uh, in San Antonio, Texas. It's the symbol of Texas independence. It was the site of a famous battle in 1836 where the American folk hero Davy Crockett and uh, several hundred other brave souls gave their lives. This is spoken like someone who graduated from the University of Texas, I might add. Uh, against uh, superior besieging forces of the Mexican dictator Santa Ana. And uh, though a group of men, and, uh, women, and children survived, uh, everyone else was killed. Uh, all, all, all the men in the battle were killed. Uh, Crockett apparently was killed after the battle, but everyone you know, involved died. What, uh, several people might have escaped the fort. That's, that's as far as we know. Now, Richard Flores at, at the uh, University of Texas has uh, written a book called Remember the Alamo, Memory, Modernity, and Master Symbol. I think the way he talks about the Alamo as, a, as, as place is very much the way I see, I see the art of Taiji Chuan, really, as a kind of, of, of kind of site. He says, in effect, remembering the Alamo as a site of cultural memory, as a sacred site in the pantheon of American public history, serves to hide the material social relations and conditions that require such sites in the first place. This process of remembering has already stamped the Alamo as a naturally given icon of American cultural memory, leaving us to understand not the historical character, but its meaning. Well, in a similar way, I'm taking Taiji as, as a naturally given icon of uh, diasporic Chinese cultural memory. And working my way back through that social and historical condition, um, looking at what's you know, influenced the practice inside and outside of China. Um, <coughs> uh, Florida City, you know, draws on Frederick Jameson a lot in this regard, uh, particularly looking at uh, Jameson's notion of the ways that uh, practices and customs uh, forged from new relations of material and ideological production ascend to a position of dominance. And I think this happens, of course, in, in Taiji in a different way, um, which I'll discuss later, in that it, uh, especially in the 1920s, Taiji in Shanghai uh, reflects um, sort of a emerging class divisions between wage-earning working, cla wage working class, uh, you've got new, newly moneyed elites in the city, um, you've got a consumption-oriented middle class and a capitalist entrepreneurial upper class. So, you know, that, that's sort of the extent of today's Marxist analysis of the, of the problem, but, but I think it's quite applicable in, if you look at the, the history of the art. So, what exactly is the history? All right, well, or what are the histories, these multi-local histories? Well, we can start out with, uh, with a little folklore, and that there's a famous story of Zhang Sanfeng, who is said to be, there's an historical Zhang Sanfeng, but the Zhang Sanfeng who sort of transformed in folkloric terms, uh, was said to have created or discovered Taiji either during the Song period, 960 to 1279, or maybe the Yuan period, 1279, 1368. And um, he's said to be a Taoist hermit who um, there are a couple of different stories about how he comes across Taiji Chuan. Uh, the first one is that originally he was a Buddhist. He was a Buddhist novice monk in the Shaolin Temple in Hunan. And he, uh, he and his best friend were kicked out. All right? 
for a while, they had a good time, young bachelors, you know, in Hanan. But as time passed, his friend became more and more selfish and self-centered, and eventually became a kind of a bandit, all right, and was sort of marauding the countryside. And this drove Zhang Sanfeng uh, crazy. I mean, he was really devastated by what happened with his friendship. And he sort of went into retreat. And um, while he was in retreat, one day he was standing next to a well full of water. And there was a ball in the well. Just for no particular reason, he pushed the ball down into the well, into the water. And because it was full of air, it popped back up. So he pushed it down again, popped back up. Suddenly, he was enlightened, at least about martial arts. And he realized that it, he could do this inside his body. He, he could actually use this principle of buoyancy in his body. And so he, he created the martial art out of that. And eventually, uh, uh, you know, overcame his friend. Now, uh, let me find this. I actually have a picture of him. There he is. <laughs> All right. So one day I, I was in the park uh, doing push hands with, with somebody else. And, uh, and as a normal part of my you know, field work, I, I would ask people, you know, what's the origin story that you've heard about Tai Chi? And I said, you know, I was talking to this guy, and he mentioned John Sanfog, and I said, yeah, I know that, I know that legend. And uh, he said, it's not a legend. It's really happened. And this is a story. And he proceeded to tell the story I just told you. And I had seen this movie, with the, which is called Taiji John Sanfog, with Jet Li. And I said, you know, that's interesting. That sounds just like the movie. He said, oh, well, yeah, it is that movie. That's where I got the story. But I think it's true. I think that's a good story. That's a good explanation for where Taiji comes from. So I, I think that what was telling about this moment for me is that uh, you know the, the production of the story, the, the truth of the story is, is less important than its applicability. Its applicability to the practice in this case. That that person found that story to be valuable, uh, and he knew the other stories about Zhang Sanfeng. For example, Zhang Sanfeng. The more common one is Jiang Sanfeng one day sees a, a bird and a snake fighting, and the bird uh, attacks with his beak, and the snake evades. And eventually, the bird is exhausted and overcome by the snake, thus proving that softness and flexibility and circularity can overcome you know, uh, you know, hardness. Of course, I imagine sometimes the bird wins in those battles, but he didn't see that. Uh, so that story is known. That story certainly. But for this person, he liked the other stories. You know, when I'm practicing my Tai Chi, I find this useful to think about this boy in the ball. All right? And he didn't know I'd seen, I'd seen this, so he, he told me that story first. Well, most contemporary Tai Chi training manuals, and I mean published in the 20th century, particularly late 20th century, have a particular history that um, starts with Zhang Fa, who teaches Tai Chi to the uh, Chen, to Chen Wangting of the Chen, Chen family village in Henan. Successive generations of Chen family members practice the form until um, 
according to some evidence, a guy named Yang Luchan uh, comes to the village as a servant and uh, secretly learns the form because he's not a Chun family member, so he can't learn the secret family art. So he peeks over the wall where they're practicing in this yard, and uh, he goes he goes to his room and practices the moves. Eventually, he's caught, and then he's he's confronted and said, "All right, well, you're practicing. Then come on out here and let's see what you can do." And he defeats some of the uh, the Chen family students, and so then they they begin to teach him. Uh, unclear whether or how true the story is, but what is true is that today in Chenjago, the Chen family village, there is a little museum uh, to Yang Luchan, and um, Again, I think I have an image here. And the story is that um, the Chen family you know, passes down, Chen Dangxin passes the art to Yang Wuchen. So this is the, these are the writings, these are the secret writings about the art, passing it on. Now this was actually financed, I was told at the time, I'm not 100% sure about this, uh, by a Taiwanese businessman who was a Yang-style Tai Chi practitioner. So Yang comes from Chen style in, in this story. And he wanted to return to the village, and and the village, well, you know, if you ask people in Chen Village, is this true? They'll say, <laughs> maybe. And so I asked, well, why is there this museum here? Why, why, why is this here? He said, well, he gave a lot of money to the village. You know, he was quite generous. A lot of the new buildings, and there was quite a lot of new building going on. He said, a lot of these were financed by that person. So we we were thankful. So again, the story is unclear, but the, the, the reasons for perpetuating a particular story are very practical in this case. All right, so then we get into a little, a little better documentation, but still family stories, essentially. Yang Luchan teaches, goes to Beijing. He teaches members of the Imperial Guard, Manchu Imperial Guard. Uh, one of the people he teaches in that guard is uh, a Manchu officer named uh, Chuan Yu. Yo is the father of Wu Jianchuan, who is the, ultimately the founder of the Wu style Tai Chi that you just practiced. So that's your lineage. <laughs> right now, you got up and you started the Tai Chi. You are now in that lineage. Uh, Wu Jianchuan has a daughter named Wu Yinghua, and, uh, and she marries Ma Yue Yang. They're the uh, patriarch and matriarch of the association who I first met when I, I began working with this group in 1988. They're quite actively teaching, though they were in their late 80s and 90s at that time. Because they taught so actively, uh, really they had quite a few disciples, Tudi, formal disciples, as well as other students who really practiced quite diligently and came to a fairly high level with their Tai Chi practice. And those folks are the ones who are populating these parks all around, all around uh, Shanghai and eventually move out into other places and other countries. Now, uh, some interesting things happened in the, in the mid-20th century in terms of the history, too, that tempered the story and ultimately tempered the practice, tempered the movement. Um, as I said, Wu Jianchuan is teaching with these other teachers in the YMCA in Shanghai on the 10th floor. Now, what's happening at that point, uh, in the 19, uh, early 1920s, late teens, early 20s, the Chinese government, uh, you know, having a, begun a new republic, wants to enter the modern world, and one way to do that is through sport and through participation in, in the Olympics, for example. But there's a pretty early recognition that China cannot be competitive 
in most of the Olympic sports. But there's also recognition that there are indigenous folk sports. So um, there's an active encouragement of martial arts instructors to begin taking these so-called secret family arts and teaching, teaching the public. At that point, you start to see the transformation of the art uh, in terms of the movement itself. After this new economy comes into play, this invitation to teach publicly, and they slowed it down in terms of the pace. The movements are all still individually, you know, movements with a specific self-defense purpose. But you can see the first version is obviously a bit more martial in, in, in feeling performance. Now, there is a counter, uh, counter discourse about that. Other people outside the Wu group said, no, that was invented in the 50s, that fast one. It was made up in the 50s. They just say that. So I think it's uh, only fair to include that voice in the argument. But I think the evidence is pretty good. That we have at least one Chen stylist in here. And in some ways, it's clear that this fast form is closer to the Chen style Taiji because it includes some explosive movements called Faji, issuing energy. By 1930, you see the government now quite involved with creating this, what is now called Guoshu, the national art, as a symbol of, of the, the strengthening of the national body in China. And the best example of this is the 1933 Berlin Olympics, where we talked about a little bit earlier today too, where uh, it wasn't actually an Olympic sport, but in the opening ceremonies, uh, there was, a, I think, a 12-move it was a very shortened Taiji form that was actually created just for the Olympic ceremonies. And it included men and women in the performance. So it's very much a symbol of both the new China and the old China at the same time. By 1949, during the 30s, uh, Taiji was popular, but practiced still generally by this upper middle class group, as well as serious martial artists. When the Japanese entered China, like all martial arts, uh, there was a lot of, you know, in Japanese controlled areas, they were outlawed. Martial artists who were in Chinese controlled areas tried to maintain the practice through national competitions and that kind of thing. By 1949, uh, you actually see a lot of teachers fleeing to Taiwan. And so now the discourse there is that the real Taiji is in Taiwan. If you're talking to Taiwanese teachers, uh, if you're talking to mainland teachers, like, oh, no, 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 you know. The best people stuck around here. All right. So that continues to be a debate amongst Tai Chi practitioners of all styles, mainly Yang style Tai Chi, which is popular, very popular in Taiwan. Now, in the 50s, you see, because of the communist victory, you see the US uh, move its military personnel into Taiwan. And one result of this is, is that these military personnel, and particularly, actually, a couple of CIA people, um, not for any intelligence reasons, just because they were interested, started practicing Chinese martial arts and ended up writing some books about Chinese martial arts. By 1965, you see an immigration reform in the US that allows some of these teachers of the martial arts to be brought to the states. And you see, you see a pretty sort of heavy influx of martial arts teachers and you know, Chinese people in general at that time. And then you, this goes along with this youth counterculture that's embracing Eastern philosophies and very much interested in uh, 
in what's going on, in, uh, uh, particularly in India, but also also you know in China. Late sixties, Bruce Lee starts making you know, wonderful films. The most famous is Enter the Dragon, again popularizing the idea of Tai Chi. Uh, you see uh, the same time a show that he develops called Kung Fu, which was a uh, David Carradine. Sorry, a guy named, as a character named Kwai Cheng Kane. Kwai Cheng Kane is a half-white, half-Chinese man who ends up in the late 19th century studying uh, Shaolin martial arts in Henan, the Shaolin Temple. He gets into a, a, he has a problem, he has to flee the country, and so he's wandering the Old West looking for his half-brother. So what you see every week on American television at that point, and I assume it was playing here as well, is a uh, this sort of representation of Chinese-American history, Hollywoodized Buddhism, and, and martial arts. All right, let me uh, jump back to a couple of stories here, personal stories. Uh, November 2000, I was in San Francisco, and I was talking to a guy named uh, Wong. He's one of the most famous Tai Chi teachers in San Francisco. I was talking to him in his office, and he was telling me about uh, how he acquired American citizenship, because his, uh, his grandfather was originally Hawaiian. So he moved to the United States when he was uh, a boy in 1960. And he says, you know, at that time they didn't have any ESL classes. It was very difficult for me to learn English. The teachers tried to be nice to us in the classroom, but, you know, all we could really read was baby books. If you're born here, you speak English, but, you know, you really don't get it. I mean, it's very hard to learn English for us, especially if we live in Chinatown, you know. With our family and friends and everybody, we always speak Cantonese. And then, you know, we practice Gong Fu, so we speak Cantonese. So by the time I graduated from high school, I still couldn't make any conversation with other people. But anyway, that's the old days. And he goes on, you know, uh, do you remember the old days? In the 70s, the Kung Fu TV series with David Carradine? They talked a lot about Kung Fu philosophy. I mean, what's Kung Fu philosophy? I mean, that's really hard for us, you know, the people come into the studio the martial arts school, and they say, oh, I, I want to learn about Kung Fu because I want to learn the philosophy. Well, they didn't know that most of the Kung Fu teachers don't know anything about Kung Fu philosophy. And we had to go down to the library and we had to learn about it. And we had to learn about Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism all thrown in. That's Kung Fu philosophy. That was fascinating to people. They really want, didn't want to learn Kung Fu. They wanted to learn Kung Fu philosophy. Sometimes I'd say to them, Hey, did you ever think about football philosophy? <laughs> What's football philosophy? And they said, football's a sport. And I say, well, Kung Fu's a sport too. So non-Chinese students come to Teacher Wong's studio to experience Chinese-ness through Tai Chi or other martial arts, to actually become Chinese for a few hours during the day, to get off on being Chinese. They expect Wong to enact a certain brand of Chineseness. Wong, in turn, both gives them what they, what they say they want and confronts them about this expectation. The non-Chinese student comes looking for the little old Chinese man, even though Wong is young. Wong, on the other hand, wants no part of it. But he and other teachers who suffer similar instances of Orientalism and feel that resistance is futile. Now, I see this on the other side of the point, too, with American martial artists in Shanghai. Uh, I'm sitting in a cafe with 
a guy named Peter, a Canadian martial artist, businessman in his mid-30s. He says, you know, he asked me about my first experience in Shanghai. I said, you know, I have a hard time losing my first images of this place in the 80s. And he says, well, I say don't lose it. I mean, to me, I've been involved with real estate and everything, but it's kind of sad. It's becoming generic. I mean, this coffee shop we're in could be anywhere. It doesn't even have to be in Shanghai. And I asked him about where he started studying martial arts. He said, you know, I think, I can't remember, but I think it was that show Kung Fu started dating care a major influence. I was probably 10 or 11, and you know, I remember practicing my front snap kicks in my bedroom and wanting to be, well, not wanting to be so much, but admiring the Shaolin monks and the Kung Fu. So that was the input. And then there was Bruce Lee, obviously. He was a big part. But I'm a bit contrarian, so if everyone else was saying Bruce Lee is awesome, I was sort of saying, well, he's okay. A few days later, I'm in another grill, talking to a friend of Peter's, who's also a martial artist. Philip was a rare martial artist in Shanghai that he actually had his own martial arts school there. He says, uh, you know, I'm 32 years old, and I was originally born in Dublin. My dad was studying out there. I went back to London when I was a kid. Lived there till I was six. Then I moved to Canada. Well, while I was in Canada, I was picked on quite a bit because I'm part Indian, you know, East Indian, not North American Indian, and because of my British accent. My dad's about five foot nothing and a doctor, so he fixes people, he doesn't hurt them. And anyway, he said I should go learn how to defend myself, so I tried boxing. But I was quite small, so I started doing a tiger-style kung fu. And I still can't remember uh, why, but I, I was in a hall, and at the end of the hall was a poster of Bruce Lee, and that started my interest in it. But back then, I mean, I was six or seven years old. I really didn't know who Bruce Lee was. Now, Philip goes on to talk about his experiences is a full contact fighter. He actually got involved with this whole fight club world, this underground world of bare hand fighting before it got popular as what's now called uh, the uh, UFC or mixed martial arts. Very popular on American television. Movies. Well, he was in this world when it was, you know, in secretly done in basements and it was all illegal. And it, the way he told it, uh, he was kind of in getting beaten up. Having psychological problems, he, he he wanted to get beaten up all the time. Um, but he came out of it learning how to defend himself. So he he did actually start the school after that. So what Barry Lowe and Sifu Wang and Peter are doing and Philip, they're all encountering this Chineseness as a complicated mix of a search for self-actualization, never-ending shedding of Orientalism, and a confrontation with the limitations of fantasy. Now, I know we're almost out of time here, and I want to just jump ahead to uh, one last level of analysis, which I think is a little entertaining. Uh, that is um, the world of products. That is one other area where, where Chinese sort of infiltrates itself into the body, and it comes down to the practice, or the reasons for people participating in the practice. There's different kinds of products that are circulating in this global uh, kind of uh, Global Chinatown marketplace. One of my favorites is the, uh, for example, Buns of Steel Mind Body Series Tai Chi video. Uh, it features a male teacher clad in a kung fu suit, two female assistants in brightly colored aerobics garb, and the cover blurb uh, makes several attractive claims. It says the ancient art of Tai Chi is the perfect way to exercise the body while calming the mind. This Buns of Steel video makes Tai Chi easy to learn 
Experience Taiji's health-giving properties as you move in slow, balanced, fluid fashion. All the major muscle groups of the body, plus the heart and lungs, work in unison. Your energy becomes more focused. Your limbs become more flexible. You feel completely relaxed. Enjoy how this feeling lasts and lasts. Um, I agree with Adorno here when he says the consumer is really worshipping what he himself has paid for the ticket. I think that really applies in this case. Uh, the consumers of this buns of steel tape were you know, asked through advertising images to value the price of the spandex, valuing the appearance as opposed to the, the core of the art in this case. Now, um, this applies to oh, pharmaceuticals or herbal remedies as well. There's one called uh, Chi Energy I found in a shelf in a supermarket in Austin, Texas. Um, it says on the label, uh, it's, it's actually produced by Medicine Wheel, which is a Native American reference, but it's also part of their sports medicine formula. So you have sort of three discourses competing on the same bottle here. Uh, there's no reference to Qi other than Qi Energy. Another project found in the General Nutrition Centers is Ginseng Gold. And this is what's on the Ginseng Gold label. Peak potency is determined by measuring ginsenoside and eleutheroside levels, which are naturally occurring phytochemicals in Gaoyan ginseng with their active properties. This is accomplished through a process known as high-performance liquid chromatography, HPLC. HPLC uses high-pressure pumps to separate compounds based on chemical properties. So there's this competing scientific discourse going on at the same time. You know, these are like little open doors in the way I'm viewing the practice of Chinese. Little open doors that gets people interested in a whole world of Chineseness, or what we practice.